it's, it's interesting to look at the new Halloween movies. You know, they're running and screaming. I'm like, aren't you teenagers with cell phones? And that's our cue to start <laughs> a podcast. Our streak is going real well. We have not missed an episode so far since we've started. Oh, wait a minute. How do I get this thing? Back on oh. the podcast porch. Yeah, podcast porch. Uh, Studio A at Rivermont Studios. Yeah, I just want to say before we really get into it, I appreciate doing this. And I don't want to sound too cheesy, but I have a good time doing this. I appreciate being able to do it. Yeah, man, it's a good time. It's always something to... Yeah, I mean, like, I don't feel like I'm ever having to fill in a, uh, a void, maybe, or agenda or something. Like, I don't feel, no, that's not the right way. I feel like it is not something that has to be uh, worked into a schedule. It just seems like an easy, good time. Yeah. That's the best way to explain yeah, that. I, I agree. I don't feel like this is something we have to schedule up. And not to get too deep into it, but I definitely think... When we started doing this, it was just a way for me and Zach to hang out. And it's sort of like, why don't we just put a little recording on it? Mm -hmm. But I will say uh, the amount of interactions and the amount of feedback and things like that that we get, that has really helped it keep going. Um, Of course, we would still hang out either way. But doing this, if it wasn't for the listeners, you know, know, I'm not saying we're nothing big, but it's still makes us want to keep doing it it's i don't think we expected any type of listener Mm-mm. i remember the first time we got a listener and it was like croatia or something mm-hmm. and we were confused about that we were like who in croatia is listening to us and then it progressively <laughs> sort of built you know out of that of course we i mean we're not like completely uh off the radar of social media and stuff but like Still yeah. kind of shocking. It's like, I guess you just go listen to some strangers talk about pipe smoking. Yeah, and especially in this day and age, like, take take the what the content of it is about. Anybody and everybody is making podcasts or are making podcasts. Like, it's so accessible, and there's so much out there. It's like it's an overload. Like, how do you know what to listen to? How do you know what to devote your time to? And, you know, it's just... Well, the good news is, I mean, like, I guess it covers every niche market you could ever want. Exactly. And, you know, with the pipe community, um, you know, it, even though they're, even though everybody is making podcasts, the pipe community is still fairly young. There are a lot of YouTube channels and podcasts that delve into pipes. But, you know, of course, our end game was always to expand go beyond pipes you know pipes is a thing that brings us together but it ain't the only thing that we enjoy well interesting thing about pipes is is i was around in the first wave of youtube pipe smokers Mm -hmm. who are actually no longer making videos really like pipe lawyer i don't think he's made a video in forever uh public piper piper um, public piper yeah has he done it i don't think he's done anything there was another guy named uh he was I think Portuguese and his videos were amazing and he got into a kind of kerfuffle Mm -hmm. and then, you know, so it's, it's weird seeing everything sort of come in in waves. Yeah. So we're in the kind of the second generation. So I guess we're part of that. Yeah. And you know, hopefully we'll, we will be continuing to do this 
-hmm. And hopefully this way will be, we'll just keep going. Um, so before we get into the pipes and the tobacco, between the time that we published that one and the time that you're hearing this one, they dropped a little old trailer for Dune. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just figured it'd be nice to touch on that a little bit, see what we thought. Uh, it, outside of that trailer alone, there is a trend amongst movies to take a an older rock song, adjust it, add a little chorus to it, and throw it over the trailer. It, it's been happening for a while, and I blame actually one of my one of my favorite trailers of all time, the Watchmen trailer. I think it started it. It was the first big one because I remember seeing that trailer and they played it to a Smashing Pumpkin song. Mm -hmm. I thought this is the greatest trailer I've ever seen in my life. I'm like, this is incredible. Like the just everything hits. There's a you know there's it's just so cool. And of course, a decade later, they're they're still doing it. Now, granted, as much as this is one of those things, as much as I want to hate that, every time I've seen it done, I actually enjoy it. Right. And so the Dune trailer, you know, the visuals were great. It, it's what you expect from a Denny Villeneuve movie. It's just, it looks the way his stuff looks. It, the I didn't have any. I've, I've seen a lot of people have a problem with uh, Chalamet. I thought I thought he was fine. Like he brought it for me. Like he did most of the dialogue in the trailer, and what he said, I believed. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I really like his the way he was talking with uh, the Reverend Mother at the beginning. I thought that 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 little interaction was really nice. Yeah, but the. I, I enjoyed the Pink Floyd, you know, song on top. I thought it sort of fit well with the emotions of what was happening. Because for people who don't know Dune, you're sort of, you're still sort of like, I don't really know what's happening here. But it's sort of, it, I don't know, it, it added to it for me. And I don't know, I'm excited for it. I, I, it can only, in my mind, it can only be, be get better from this point. And uh, yeah, I'm just ex sort of excited to see it. Uh, I really enjoyed the first look at the Baron. Uh, just the little glimpses we got of him. That, that's sort of my thought. Is I think it'll be good, but it may be another case of Blade Runner twenty forty nine. It's a it's a, a remake or a sequel to a cult classic. Right. And it's hard to fill the seats, and that's why the trailers have to look the way they do because they have to appeal to the mass market, not the Dune fanboys. Right. Or fan people. So I do think that the trailer captured a lot of intrigue that would probably get someone excited who had never been exposed to Dune. Mm-hmm. The novel. However, I do not like that Pink Floyd song at all. Mm -hmm. God, I thought it was so annoying. Mm -hmm. Like that's just me. Yeah. I I just I was like, you could have done something. So, but then I was like thinking, you know, well, this really isn't a trailer for me because my tickets essentially sold. Yep. Uh, this is something to sort of grab hold of other people. They really yeah. do need a hit. Yeah, uh, I think in this instance, yep. and I don't think I think they're worried that this might be a little fringe, you yep. know. Yeah, it, it might just be a little bit, uh, you know, off the beaten path for uh, general audiences. Yeah, I went back and listened to the original Pink Floyd song. I don't really care for it. I do like the Hans Zimmer thing that he did mm. to it, but it's probably not the song. It's more that I like. I like music that sort of, I don't know, it's weird. Like the, do you remember the first, there was two trailers before Stranger Things came out. They, they did two versions of a trailer. One was. The one that got me was the first one. I think the hook where she's just like, 
what about the one 99 out of 100 mm-hmm. times mm-hmm. that particular trailer really well, worked and i think they did they, they, essentially both of them were the same trailer but one the audio was mixed to make it very horror focused it, it, it felt really suspenseful the one i'm thinking of is the one that it, it was almost like it didn't match up it the visuals and everything made you think of what stranger things is but the audio was almost like a triumphant kind of music and like something you would feel like at the climax of an avengers movie kind of oh really and i was like i was like i really like that juxtaposition of we're looking at horror suspenseful sci-fi kind of stuff but we're getting that kind of music it was it was like hopeful kind of music and i was like i really enjoy that so that kind of aspect ties into i guess because especially when when it first hits when that chorus of of the pink floyd hits it's sort of just i'm like and then there's one part where it really cranks up when it's like right when you first see the worm for the first time when it's swallowing the the mining operation yeah yeah the mining operation like it sort of just gets big like the the or orchestral part of it gets big and mm-hmm. the the harmonizing gets real big and it's like so it, it makes me when i hear music like that like i get goosebumps right. and so like i look for that kind of stuff and like i said so the trend i don't really i'd rather just you know have i guess just normal hans zimmer like music i guess but I mean, every time it's not like they take an actual song and just overlay it, except for like Suicide Squad did it with. Um... Well, Suicide Squad looked like they went into the catalog of everything Warner Brothers had ever produced and just pulled out. I mean, that was the whole film. Yeah. It was just like, how can we get every single hit song throughout the century? It, it was. Century? Yeah, it was like you had a soundtrack. Like a like a CD player, and you were hitting skip every every time the scene changed. Every time the scene changed, it would just be like House of the Rising Sun, like, like yeah, uh, you know, just some Queen song, just whatever. I think the first ten minutes you heard seven different pop culture songs, like from the from from Warner Brothers. It was crazy. But I mean, it's like I guess they felt like they needed to spend the money. I mean, the movie was well, it was a post Guardians of the Galaxy world. And, and ironically, now they've got the director of Guardians of the Galaxy to create the like, sequel. Like a soft, it's a sequel slash soft reboot kind of thing. Oh, they're it's, saying it's a soft reboot. Well, it's, it has a lot of the same characters and the same actors, but they're sort of re... Because the name is just The Suicide Squad. They just put The in front of Suicide Squad, mm-hmm. so... I think it, it is a sequel, but it's very... They're not going to really mention the first one a lot. I think they had uh, King Shark in it, from what I gather. Yeah, they got a lot of people. So I think they're actually going to do what they should have done in the first one, because they only did it with Captain or uh, uh, Slipknot. You know, they killed him to sort of be like, hey, right. we're, we're, we're serious. I think they're going to do that heavy. I think they're taking from Deadpool, too. <laughs> you know, where... The, or they just kill a bunch yeah. of people. I think they're going to do that, but not as much comedic effect, more for just, hey, yeah, like, don't toy around with us. The problem with that is is that, like, it's not going to have a hard R, so it's not going to have the same. Yeah. Oh, it's not going to have a hard R? They're not putting one on it? I don't I, 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 I don't know. I, I imagine they wouldn't. I don't Unless follow they're it. trying to go this Joker route. Could they could. But I doubt it. See, I never really, what's, what's crazy about that, until Deadpool came around, I didn't, or, and Logan and things like that, I didn't realize that 
our movies were harder to make money because I just didn't internalize that, oh yeah, less people can go see them. So it, I just never thought, I was like, I didn't think that would influence it. But now that I know that, it's just like, well, yeah, I guess it is harder to make an R movie. I think the MPA is kind of a joke, though. Yeah, because, I mean, how do you control what a parent shows their kid at home? Which, I mean, that's sort of a, that's a big argument for, like, everything, like. I mean, I remember I, I snuck into, like, Pitch Black, which is a Vin Diesel movie. Oh, The Chronicles of Riddick, yeah. yeah. Uh, when I was a kid. I mean, I was like 12, and I snuck in to see it, you know, rated R. I'm pretty sure I was, I'm pretty sure I was around that age, maybe a little bit older when I saw Freddy vs. Jason. Mm-hmm. Well, Resurrection, when did Halloween Resurrection come out? 2003? That sounds about right. I went and saw that in the theater, and I, and I was 12 years old. I was born in 91. I mean, when you're, like, 17 is such a peculiar age, because I think it's... Really, the age that people start having sex, so which is really not, you're just not an adult, like you know. Mm-hmm. So, but then that's the age I can get into a rated R film. Yeah, and I think that's when people start dabbling in like alcohol and drugs. I think on average, that's when you're going to start experimenting with that kind of stuff. You would think. So I guess it's like, let's just get them into rated R movies or doing everything else. Yeah, you would think that society, just the way that people try to control society, you would think that they would have already come up with a way to where they started staggering things like that more. Like, the, the age you could buy tobacco staggered a little bit more. It already is staggered for most states. Like, most states, tobacco's like 19 and alcohol's 21. That's no, all 21 now. Do what? You know, the law passed. So oh, can't... it's federal? Federal law, I think you have to be 21 now to buy tobacco. It, it, that overrides the state? state? Yeah, really? overrode everything. That's another issue for another day. I don't, I don't think federal law should override state law. Well, oh, I don't think. I think the smallest amount of government should represent. Like, if the city of wherever you live says that you can be 15 about tobacco, it don't matter what the state says, no matter what federal says. What they have agreed on is what they should be able to do. The smallest amount of government should control it, whatever it governs. The largest amount of government should not worry about that kind of stuff. They should just worry about defense and. I mean, like I that. couldn't agree with you more. But I can see where they could get in a can of worms. But like the well, thing... I mean, you can look at San Francisco and see that that's a problem. Yeah. And I'm not like, you know, if, if someone's from San Francisco and they're complaining about what I just said, I mean, like, why is it that there's San Francisco, I think, like, government that can't do business in certain states? Like, yeah. Like, how do you, how can that be a thing? Yeah. Yeah, I think if, you, if you're a city employee of San Francisco, you can't. Like, you can't do business with, like, Alabama, Georgia. It's a peculiar thing. I mean, like, you know, you could go into all the kind of draconian regulation that you wanted to, but, I mean, it just seems strange that you can regulate someone's business dealings outside of California. Like, what does that even, like, it's not, it, I, I sort of can grasp it in an international sense. Yeah. But state to state, yeah, it's strange. Yeah, it is, yeah. Well, to wrap that up, you know, we just wanted to touch on that Dune trailer because, of the, I, as you can tell, we're excited, you know, just to see that, you know, it's Dune, it's Denis Villeneuve, it's, you know, it's got good actors. Um, it and, does look really good, though. Yeah, and, uh, and you know, I think if it's good, because I, I, I definitely want to make the, make the point, if the movie is good, I definitely think the Dune people 
who are actual fans need to go see it multiple times to help, you know, help, <laughs> you know, the, it, you know, because it's not going to be the finished product because we need the second one to finish the story of the first book. And the only way that's going to happen, because it's not officially greenlit yet, so the only way that's going to happen is if this one makes money. So if it is good, and you think it's good, go see it more than one time to help make that happen. Wow, I didn't realize that they, that seems like a really, that seems like a high risk. I know. I'm sure they're going to end it to where if something happened and they didn't make a second one, it would tie up. It, I, it would be fine, but... I hope they don't because to me that would make it less of a good movie. I thought they had actually filmed everything. I don't think they have. I think they've only filmed enough for the first movie because that's what they keep talking about is that it's not it's not given that they're going to make it. Well, and they could have filmed everything, but you still got to think about marketing and stuff. The the studio may be like, well, yeah, it's filmed, but we don't want to fool with the marketing, the promotion, and anything like that. Right. And we don't want to run the cir- the a circuit on it. I don't know, but yeah. So that that's sort of it. We uh, now we'll get into what you came for. Um, we got a double dose of Doctor Silence today. I'll let Zach start off with his newest addition to, the, to his collection. So uh, re- uh, recently, I'd had a uh, pipe commission by Chris Kelly. If you guys don't know Chris Kelly, he's a uh, he's the proprietor, maker, pipe smith, uh, pipe maker of Eldridge Pipes. Um, and I, I've, I've always been gravitated towards his design um, and uh, the pipes that he produces just seem to resonate in a very kind of specific way with me. If you go back to episode one, we mentioned him. I think we mentioned him several times, but if you really want to, like we've been, you've been talking about him for a while. And I've really wanted one of his pipes for a long time. Now, the reason I got kind of cued into him is because... Um, I was looking at number eight slices, trying to figure out if it was um, something I'd be interested in. I was watching reviews, and uh, I don't know, something about his review, he mentioned it, said you should get a hold of it, and I think it what essentially made me pull the trigger. And I liked it so much that I thought, well, like, you know, what's this guy about, sort of, and I sort of investigated his pipes and then kind of fell in love with them. But then when I smoked number eight slices... Chris's sensibility with tobacco was so in line with mine that I just decided, well, I'm probably going to take any sort of grand recommendation that he has because it seems like it could fit. I think sometimes you do somewhat follow a, a through line with certain YouTubers or uh, tobacco reviews. I know a lot of people read, uh, I, I have a tendency to kind of respect, not always agree, but respect Jim Inks on tobaccoreviews.com. Yeah. He's a very prolific uh, tobacco reviewer. Um, he and I don't always see eye to eye, but I, I like his input. And there's a couple other people on tobacco reviews, YouTube, etc., that you sort of pay attention to. And Chris ended up being one of those. So anytime he recommends something, I get a hold of it. So, um, we will get into that in just a second. But like, I fell in love with his pipe, specifically the Dr. Silence pipe. I think the first time I ever laid eyes on it actually was on Stuff and Things channel. Chris mm-hmm. had uh, sent one to him yeah. for review. And uh, I was like, that's amazing. That's a beautiful pipe. Uh, I wanted one. I just could never figure out the timing. So I went ahead and uh, ordered one, uh, commissioned one from him. And uh, it's an orange Cumberland stem with a yellow and chocolate stain. It's uh, straight grain smooth. 
no sandblasting or anything with a plateau top it's about seven inches long with a two inch deep bowl and that's kind of the mechanics of it but that's not really what you guys care about what you care about is whether or not it smokes well and uh you know i thought about this for a long time because um i think everyone when i came into pipe smoking which has been about 2006 ish something like that um about when I was 19, back when you could smoke when you were 19, and um, I got a couple of pipes, uh, I got a cheap Sassini and Bjorn pipe, which sort of reminds me of this pipe, just a more kind of reduced version of it, which is just a straight billiard shape, um, with sandblast, and that's, that's what I started on, but the Sassini was uh, the first English pipe I'd ever had, and I remember loving that pipe, still have it, um, it's kind of a straight with a sort of an oval shank and you know matching stem I think the stem it's a saddle stem with what appears to be a billiard bowl but it's sort of squat like a pot but it sort of flares like a doublet shape so there's a lot of things going on with that pipe that's very peculiar but very lovely so I I collected Sassini pipes because I like them so much and of course Sassini is a part of the four big in my opinion Sassini, Dunhill, Ashton, and Les Woods, or uh, Ferndown. And uh, I have a pipe from each of them. I only have one Dunhill. I don't think there's anything particularly special about Dunhill, except that it's sort of the grandfather of English pipes. Um, Dunhill spun off the other three that I mentioned. Um, Sassini was the first to be released from the Dunhill, but they designed... Uh, Sassini, I can't remember Sassini, the... the kind of the patriarch Sassini, but he designed and built pipes for Dunhill, spun off into his own company, Sassini. Ashton did the same thing in the 80s, uh, and then um, the silver worker, uh, Les Woods, is that his name? I could be wrong, but uh, Ferndown, he ended up, uh, started doing his own pipes. I think Ferndown is actually the superior of the big four. Mm. If I were to tell you to, if you want to buy a, you know, a traditional English pipe specifically the big four that spun off of dunhill i'd say get a fern down or a less woods pipe now that's not to take away from other uh english pipes you know there are tons of english pipes i'm not saying that and they're, they're old collectible they're i'm sure new those are the four that i particularly gravitate towards i think blakemore and northern briar are very good i hear good things never smoked them can't really comment but i would just you know i'm sure they're great english pipes but really, after those, after Ferndown, or, you know, I think they're still producing, not maybe at the level that they were, but I pretty much said, well, the English pipe-making tradition is dead. Mm. Uh, it's pretty bold, but, like, that's the way I felt about it. I didn't think that anything original or interesting were coming out of it. So I, I gravitated. I've never really gravitated towards German pipes. Um, I've, I've smoked a few Danish pipes, uh, few french pipes and things like that but i just moved to like the neoclassical shapes of the italians and i've pretty much hovered in italian briar and turkish meerschaum ever since my last fern down i purchased mm. um, i don't really care so much for english pipes anymore up until i saw chris kelly and uh i'm here to say that chris kelly has entered my five he's in the five he's in the big five as a matter mm. of fact i think that the best English pipe, you know, that you can purchase right now is a pipe from Chris Kelly. 
Now, granted, I have not smoked Blakemar or uh, Northern Briars. I believe those are English pipe makers. There's actually a great video where Chris Kelly does an interview with both the pipe makers at Blakemar and Northern uh, that you should watch. But outside of and you know outside of their years of experience, which I'm sure would make for a great pipe, the the level of detail, beauty, and just mechanics of the Chris Kelly Eldridge pipes, the Doctor Silence pipe, is just unparalleled. Um, it it smokes far superior to any of the Dunhills I've smoked. It smokes far superior to the Ferndown pipes that I've smoked, and. Uh, you know, it's, it is just on another level of pipe making. He seems like he's really cued in. He makes his own stems, uh, from a resin. And, uh, you know, I don't know where he acquires his briar from. I'm sure it's Italian. Most of them are, but there are, there's a possibility that it's Algerian or Spanish or something else. I don't know how he procures it or where he gets it from, but, um, smokes cool. The deep bowl is long lasting. Uh, you know, it's, it's a very good reading, pipe i love it and that's what i've really been reading um to lately just kind of getting down the mechanics of the pipe um and just sort of understanding what i was going to be talking about in this episode the interesting thing is is that um the pipe actually requires fewer lights because of the chambered uh sort of chimney chamber that it's got going on and it's crazy because i've set this pipe down when I was playing D&D the other night, I was puffing away, puffing away, puffing away, and then I had a bunch of things come up uh, in-game, and then I think my wife actually asked me to do something, and I, and I was doing this and that. I swear I was away from my bowl for 40 minutes, and I came back and picked it up and put it in my mouth, ready to light again, and puffed twice, and there it was. The ember was still lit, almost with some sort of, you know, otherworldly, eldritch, you know, peculiarity <laughs> is what I'll say to it. But, it, you know... Th- the pipe is really good. I truly think... I mean, as a matter of fact, I've already made plans to do another commission for a Slenderman mm-hmm. uh, next year. Because um, I don't see the point in actually purchasing Italian briar anymore. Or Italian... Sorry. Italian pipes anymore. Because uh, Chris has got... A, literally... There are at least six pipes of Chris's that I want to buy. The Slenderman will be the next one. I want the Prince of Darkness. Um, his sensibilities are just just on target uh, with how I yeah. like my pipes to look. Now, remember, this is all aesthetic. You know, I truly believe that you can get a good smoke out of a corn cob. I do not shy away from that. But mm-hmm. I do think if you want a briar, you want something from an artist. You know, and this is where, like... There is another episode in the making, I'm sure, where we can talk about artistry and the arts and how my how I interpret it, you know. But this, to me, much like backing up a giant 18-wheeler into a closed, confined space is an art. Like, <laughs> I don't think, like, photography and painting and stuff really, they don't usually, I don't really consider them, like, artistry. Now, I'm sure someone would argue with me pretty heavily on that, but that's just my opinion. I think that there is less art in the social kind of aspects of like the business of the art community versus like something that's done, you know, sort of in a, a love of the thing that actually puts bread on the table, not something that gets you sort of a snobbery upper crust, you know, 
it's an interesting thing to me. That's why I think the, the art sort of died around the 18th century, you know? Yeah, but you're saying just because that art stopped being, what you said, a way to provide for your family and then became it, just a sense of... Yeah, it just seems like it, it stopped... It celebrity. Started being, yeah, it started being uh, this weird cabal of people who really and truly made art what it is. They, they, they've established it and they've recognized it, they codified it and they allow it to be viewed by the public. Well, you know, back in the day, it was sort of someone commissioned something for themselves that paid for you to do whatever and then you could do a private painting or something like that because you did it for the love of painting but you did the private private sort of commission to kind of carry on yeah. with what you loved and you still were able to feed yourself as opposed to art for art's sake which I think is vain <laughs> and kind of silly um, sort where of it's just like I'm an artist you know and then it doesn't seem like you have any practicality because I think when you have to do something practically say do a portrait with like an aristocrat or something um, there's a practicality and a humility that comes with that that actually I think feeds into the art when you can just like paint squares or do a Jackson Pollock painting and it's basically by committee that they decide that you're a celebrity I think it's ultimately pointless so I true so kind of I'm sure that that is a really long aside to get back to what I was saying there. I think Chris Kelly's true artist and is, he makes incredible pipes, um, which because I got the Doctor Silence pipe, of course you have to pair it with something that is steadfast, long lasting, cool and delicious, which is why. Chris Kelly partnered with Ken Byron Ventures to create The Patience of Dr. Silence. Which is what we are smoking on now. That's right. Now, we've been smoking this for since the last episode. I had mm -hmm. already I'd acquired some, and I hooked Patrick up with it because I wanted him to have a pretty long entanglement with it for this episode because yep. I knew that this is specifically what we were going to be talking about. Yep, and if you... Uh have followed along at all at least with our social media efforts yeah we've been smoking it a lot like zach i've been smoking it while reading um reading the uh stories that we'll get to later but it, it is a you know it's a it's a i can't really put my finger on it yet what makes it i guess so attractive of a smoke um but it's got a you know it's just got something to it the what really struck me the first time I, I uh, smoked a bowl was the the room note. Just it had a great room note. Room note uh, had a great retro hail, uh, and th those are just some things that I try to, you know, I try to take in the first time I smoke a blend and and when I revisit blends, um, and yeah, it just it really gave it something. You know, it's just like man, I I want to I want to do that again, kind of right. Thing. The last thing you want, in my opinion, when you smoke a tobacco is to be like, well, I don't want to experience that again. With with this blend, it's just like, just keep going back to it. I mean, and, and it wasn't for this episode. It was just, I want to. You right. know, I, wanna, I want to uh, doodle. Now, I mixed in a little bit of that Virginia and Overdrive, which we talked about last episode, just to, you know, break it up a little bit. But, man, yeah, this stuff is, this stuff is really good. Now, 
Zach, you'll have to go into the details and what's in there, but I, I enjoy it. Well, I will say that, and this isn't a complaint, he's a very busy man, and I don't care if he never speaks to me again as long as he's creating tobacco that I can purchase, but I did reach out to Ken Byron. I don't think that's actually his name, but I did reach out to the website basically inquiring about it, and they did respond. That's not, but he's very busy. I don't know if you guys are paying attention, but there are a lot of October blends coming out. I recently just purchased Zombie English. I plan on actually getting a couple bags of Plague Bringer. Mm. Um, but you know, we won't go into that too much. Those are future reviews, but I did reach out. He did respond, said he needed time to think of my questions and I will, you know, answer them. And when he does, I will, you know, read them all what he answered in a, you know, future podcast. But, you know, I, I straight told him, you know, I, I think that this is an incredible blend. Um, one that actually reminds me of blends that I smoked by Steve books, who was, a Tobacconist in Oregon, he's recent, I think he recently passed away, maybe a couple years ago, but I mean, it's fairly recent. Um, but I smoked his blends uh, in 2012. He had tobacco that had been aged up to upwards of 40 years. I think that you actually might able be to be to purchase some of this tobacco from his daughter. Uh, the price gouging that she put on it were pretty crazy. Like, mm. I think it's like some of them are like $70 an ounce or something insane like that. When I purchased it, it was not unreasonable, you know? Yeah. I compare what Ken Byrnes did specifically with the patients of Dr. Silence, uh, two things that I've smoked by Steve books. There is a weird sort of mythical age to the patients. And I don't know if he has somehow acquired Virginia that is aged in the upper you know, 20s, 30s, mm -hmm. <laughs> I can't wow. really explain it, but, like, that's the way it tastes. Of course, it's a exotic Virginia is what he says, maybe, maybe like an African or something. I, you know, I really didn't look into the components too much. I know you can taste the sweetness of the Virginias. They're very, they're there, subtle. The Kentucky is there, and it kind of gives it this, like, sort of meatier quality that I really like. Not, like, literally meat, but, I mean, it gives it, like, a more robust flavor. Mm -hmm. Because there is nothing savory about this blend, in my opinion, because of the Tonquin flavoring, which actually gives... Tonquin, to me, everyone says it's sort of like, um, it's like vanilla, but you can't put your finger on it. And I'll go a step further and say that Tonquin flavoring, to me, is sort of... If you could take a Thai tea... If you guys have ever tried Thai tea, I think I've said this before in a 1792 review. If you could take a Thai tea and, and sort of drink that in between bites of uh, caramelized vanilla. Mm. Some sort of like caramel vanilla fudge. I don't know. Like I wouldn't say fudge because fudge has its own sort of properties. But like if you could take vanilla and sort of caramelize it with a, with a sugar and a butter. Um, that's sort of the flavoring you're getting in between sips of the Thai tea. Whenever you take a bite and then sip the tea, that blending sort of tastes like Tonquin. Oh. Uh, that's the most easy way to like sort of straighten it out would just to be like it tastes like caramelized caramel and vanilla. It's sort of a darker, richer vanilla flavoring to me. And I like that. I think the Tonquin is probably the best, you know additive to tobacco that you can get specifically if you are an enjoyer of aromatics um and you know that's all you can say about the components really i mean like it's it's shocking how good it is you know i truly think that you you don't really need to age a blend more than a couple of years because ultimately you're 
it's kind of a weird thing where it's like if you age a blend for a couple of years, what you're doing is making sure that the tobacco is sort of mashed, mm-hmm. that the flavors sort of are married consistent, in. Yeah. yeah, across the board. That's what you're looking for, ultimately. Yeah, um, that's a two year to five year process. Five years if you want to give it, but then there's this weird thing that happens that if you forgot about a tin for forty years. There's a whole nother thing going on with it. Now, I've had tobacco that is that old, older than me. However, that's not exactly something you're just going to be able to get your hands on all the yeah. time. Uh, the Imperial, uh, I can't remember what it was called. Steve Books blended something called Imperial something or another. And uh, it, it sort of had that same flavor profile. A little bit more stout, but the same flavor profile as the Patience of Dr. Silence. The interesting thing is about the Patience of Dr. Silence is, is like, I don't think he explicitly said that he had acquired 30-year tobacco. So it has the same kind of, it's, I can't explain how aged tobacco tastes. It's just like, when I say aged, I mean aged. Five years is not aged to me. Five years is marrying. Like, you know, that's like a, you know, it's a marrying of a profile. Age is like, I've vaulted it and it's, it's gotta be, it's almost like it, it, it acquires a must of time, but the must isn't unpleasant. It's just hard to put your finger on. Well, to say that I love this blend is an understatement. I mean, like <laughs> I literally don't reach out to tobacconists and ask them specific questions, not necessarily to try to crack the code of what exactly they did to the tobacco, but just sort of like to kind of get his understanding of where he was coming from. Like, and I was curious if he intentionally tried to make it a long smoke because you could smoke this for a very long time. It's an all day, mm-hmm. except the limited quality, quantity, not quality, the limited quantity that you can acquire. I don't recommend smoking on it all day. I recommend vaulting this up and never letting anyone touch it. <laughs> it's just that good. I mean, like, you know, I think that that's the, he, you know, I think, what is it called? Uh, you know, it's like a small batch blender, a condiment blender. You know, that's sort of what Ken Byron is. I mean, he's very, I think, in the limited qu- quantity that he, you know, produces. You know, I think it almost leads to have, like, I feel like it, it, he allows tobacco to be discovered and enjoyed, but he doesn't put everyone in a position to hoard to such an extent that you'll never get to try it. I mean, his stuff is available. Mm-hmm. Granted, I almost, I think I was in a fight for zombie English and uh, I think his site crashed or something like that or his queue crashed because we were all like reloading the page because yeah. he had a four o'clock drop and I think everyone jumped in. Um, I barely got what I needed. Oof. Um, but yeah, I think zombie English sold out in something like two minutes. Jeez. And I, I acquired a couple of bags of it, you know, for Patrick and I to review and talk about. Mm-hmm. This is the last year he's going to be able to blend it. Um, How many years has he been blending? I think this is the third year. Oh. So 2018, 2019, and 2020. Dang. We could have been smoking on it. It does stink that we are sort of behind the curve a little bit. That, yeah. like, I probably should have thrown in with Ken Byron uh, and not. I think I was too busy chasing blends that I think everyone seeks. I mean, we got a hold of what? Peace Haven. We got a hold of Blackpool, uh, Penzance. I'm talking about Esoterica here. Stonehaven. Stonehaven. I think we were just so preoccupied with finding these blends, which is ironic because the blends that I actually like 
um, and, and they're not esoteric blends. Uh, Woodbridge is another one I was trying to acquire. Um, the blends that I was trying, that I actually like, are actually all readily available. You know, I yeah. was getting the stuff that I like regularly with no problem, but I think I was consistently chasing, like, this mythical smoke just so I could... I, you know, I'm sort of a cynic because I really do just smoke things to prove that they're not that great. <laughs> um, that you could literally buy, you know, a GOP's blend, a, a Cornell and Dill blend, um, you know, one or, you know, I think really the Scandinavian tobacco group has some of the best tobacco on the market. You could buy something from them. Samuel Galwith, um, harder to find. Sure. Um, and Goth and Hogarth, harder to find. Ironically, no one smokes aromatics, which are the best thing that they produce. So, like, those are not hard to find. Uh, they have had a shortage here lately trying to get through, I think, FDA uh, and trying to get, you know, in. And I think there was actually, there might potentially be a distribution disagreement where they're actually finding a different stateside distributor. Mm. Uh, because I think Arango Cigar, yeah, they might have had a falling out. I think they're the ones that actually do the importation and distribution in yeah. the states but i think that there might be a falling out so now they're trying to find a different distributor that could be a rumor that's what i heard but uh the point is is that they're aromatics literally the best and that you know and i think in that vein you know that's what you should be you know going after and you should be smoking what you love but i think as as you know fellow pipe smokers and podcasters it's our obligation to give you the nitty-gritty because yeah. i mean i don't think stonehaven's it's definitely not better than aged burley by salani it's like it's absolutely not better than that you know yeah. um yeah. penzance i think that there isn't a gop's latakia blend that doesn't just absolutely beat the tar from penzance penzance not that great margate's really good but Margate yeah. is so readily... That's what's so funny. Margate is actually the easier one to find because no one wants it. Yeah. But Stonehaven and Penzance are nothing to like go, you know, yeah. fishing for. Margate, Pembroke, and um, and Soda Bed are like the only ones I would ever go out of and my way to get. And they're the most disliked. Yeah. No, they're... they're Okay, Ramsgate and Blackpool are really good. But I like licorice. So if you don't like licorice, yeah. steer clear. Which is interesting because Zombie English has a very... And soda bed characteristic really? to it. Oh, uh, well, then I'm I'm going to really enjoy it more than likely. When I started smoking uh, with you, you were sort of at the tail end of that um, of that quest to get the you know get the things you've always seeked the the stone havens and the and all that stuff. And you were at that little grace period where you started to realize this really isn't worth it. You right. Know, it's it, it, what what I've enjoyed has been available this whole time. Right. So luckily. It's almost one of those things. Is I've t I've said this before, and I've probably said it here. I know I've told you. There's this idea, theory, philosophy that '90s kids are feel nostalgia more than any other decade, any other group, because they saw so much technological change in a short period of time. Because I mean, I can same with you. I went from not even having a computer in the house to now having one in my pocket 24/7. Right. So like, you know, granted, I never saw black and white television you know uh, it, you know there was always black and white and color but uh i definitely you know I, I got to see technology and it's and the way it's expanded I, I say that to say that 
I sort of got a similar uh, experience with tobacco blends by starting to smoke. Uh, my 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 beginning journey co-aligned with your sort of real uh, realizing that right. I sort of my early part was you still on the search for for uh, Stonehaven. You still had I, I think I would search for Stonehaven for almost a decade. Yeah. Just you guys are gonna remember. I'm not going to time out a website too much. So ultimately, I was going to find Stonehaven in a brick and mortar, which is where I found it. The search becomes a little bit more difficult if you don't want to actively hunt and pursue so vigilantly yeah. uh, that you, you, it's almost like every day you wake up, you're, you're checking your notifications, you're checking your notifications around the clock. I've got to, I'm too busy to really be doing that. Yeah, and so because of that, I got to sort of experience the, the hunt for what everybody always hunts for, you know, with you. But then in a very rapid you know, state of things and just the way things happen, you know, Dunhill went away, but then came back with Peterson. All that happened in my first year, two years of pipe smoking. So I sort of got to get all that. And now I've gotten, which I've always sort of had that idea that if I just find the blends that I like, there really wouldn't be a need to continue to hunt more. If I find just, you know, everyday blend or everyday smoke from every blend, you know, an everyday vapor, Everyday English, uh, you know, things like that. Um, so I, I'm sort of happy about that, that, you know, we got to do the Stonehaven thing. We did the Penzance, all the esotericas. Um, and now it's just like, you know what, let's just, whatever's good. And for some people that are a little bit smaller, like Ken Byron, not saying he's small, but compared to. I think, I think it's, it would be safe to say that he's a small operation. Yeah. Because, like, the next... And it's not insulting, either. No. Because, like, as, to put that in perspective, he's a small operation, uh, but I haven't smoked anything from him yet. And I've smoked uh, Secure Moriarty, The Patient's Dr. Silence, Zombie English, uh, uh, Dark Fire Cherry, and um, Virgin Gen Overdrive. That's a pretty good amount. Yeah. I haven't, there hasn't been a misstep yet. You can't say that about another tobacco. No, I can't say. I can say that. I can say that other blenders are usually the best. The best is a 60 40 split. 60% yeah. of the time, uh, it's going to hit really well. 40% of the time, not so much. Yeah. That's almost, you know, that's 50 50. And it can range too, right? right? And so far, Ken Byron has stepped to the plate and crushed it every single yeah. time. That's pretty impressive to me. Yeah. Considering, I mean, like, that. Now, granted, there are a bunch of other blends that he's got out there, some that are less interesting to me and that I will eventually get to sometime. Like, I think early, a burly morning pipe and stuff like that, I'll yeah. eventually navigate to, and maybe that will be a misstep. But I think with the amount of blends he has, yeah, he's really killing it. Yeah, and, and, you know, one final note, like, I guess the smallest, when it comes to this, smallest um, uh, blenders would be your brick and mortars if they blend in-house stuff that's like your small guys but i i, I you know but most of the time they do aromatics yeah they mostly do aromatics and i'm not too impressed with them no so. so needless to say if you take anything from this episode you should definitely check out chris kelly you should definitely if you like them and if you you know if you want one get a pipe right you know get you know commission one from them. And then also, 
try the patience of Dr. Silence if you can. If you can get a hold <laughs> of it. I think it's can. sold out twice now. At least give Ken Byron uh, Ventures a shot. Ken um, Byron Ventures is 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 amazing. So I feel like the next five episodes are going to all be Ken Byron Bloom. I do think so, too. Um, so if you don't like us talking about that... You're going to have to... Like, we're going... I, I think we're in a position now because we've gone through some of the major... The major blends. I mean, like, the major... Like, everyone talks them up. So now it's time to actually just discuss things that we enjoy and we don't have to explore all these mythically great things that are actually terrible. Yeah. Now switching over, um, we did a lot of uh, a lot of homework for this episode. I would say for this section we're getting into, it's October, things are getting spooky, and it's a good time to sort of dive into a little a little on the spook side. So we will begin with the classic from H.P. Lovecraft, the the color out of space. Now. I believe going back and listening to our early episodes, <clears throat> I had never read this before now, but I remember you saying that it was one of your favorites of his, yep. which you have a different, you, you you have a more realistic approach to him. You know, it's, he's, there are people out there who either don't know him. This is the majority of people, right? Uh, well, the majority of people, oh, I'd say half the people don't know him. The other 40% think he's a god. You're in that ten percent that's like, yeah, he, he, he brought something to the table, but I mean, sometimes execution ain't there. Right. Uh, <laughs> he isn't always the greatest writer in the world. Yeah. Um, he has a classic case of I've built something pretty incredible. I would much rather ruminate on the idea. Yes. Uh, than sort of give. Uh, the character volition and purpose. Um, it does seem like it's a very expository exercise, yes. which isn't always bad. I've mentioned this before. I do like exposition sometimes. Yeah. Um, I don't think that it's necessarily a writing faux pas, but like there are times when there, the exposition, it can't just be only exposition. Yeah. Uh, you're going to have to let something transpire. I think. I think. Um, doesn't mean that like I can't be t- carried away with what Lovecraft has created, specifically in the color of space. But it does seem like you're getting a you know almost like a fourth hand account of it. You know, it's always like a guy who wasn't there who talked to an old man whose father witnessed it. Like it's it seems like there are things like that that happen. And and this is a general yeah. thing, Lovecraft. Um, but I would say that's. That's pretty pretty much accurate to the color out of space minus but, the second. Yeah, but I would say that, in an almost you could look at it from this perspective, from that kind of idea, it gives credence to the uh, unknown of the story. Is that what has been changed in the different accounts? You know what I'm saying? Because we all know that stories get exaggerated and well, that's very parts true. get left However, out. The problem with that is that there is never in so far as we know outside yeah. of potential suggestion there has never been a time where Lovecraft has actually 
and I don't want to say this too absolute, but from what I gather, there has never been a time that he's written where you're supposed to say that there's an unreliable narrator. Yeah. Which is interesting because a lot of this, what's symptomatic of the human condition in a Lovecraft story is insanity and yeah. them going insane, which would actually co- sort of lean it, lead itself to, or give itself to uh, an unreliable narrator. Yeah. But I don't think he ever really, you, you don't get the, you're not suspicious of what the narrator's saying. Yeah. There's no subtext, no clues that make you think you should be questioning the narrator. Right. Which is actually funny is as much as like, I, I don't always want an unreliable narrator. <clears throat> it is funny that humans in and of ourselves are unreliable narrators, even to our own stories and our own memories, because <clears throat> our minds usually misremember things a lot. Um, the, and of course, events have their own bias to who, to the perspective of the person in the event, right? Me and you may be in a car crash, but your perspective of the events are, may be completely different than mine, other than the fact that there was a car crash. Well, there's a well-known argument that like mm. lies can actually become embedded in your mind as memory, mm. to a point that like uh, they were using <clears throat> some of that as uh, hearing something and then sort of misremembering and then sort of um, creating it. What I mean by that is, is they use that argument for comedians who still jokes that they actually heard it in a set and then the joke isn't the same but they're so similar that it would look like he had lifted it. Well, he did, he just doesn't consciously remember it. Uh, which can be problematic because the person thinks that that was an original idea. In hindsight, they probably did in fact hear it. Um, yeah. Not remember hearing it and then conjuring up this subsequent idea. Yeah, yeah. And I've learned to a, a sort of different kind of perspective on that. I've realized that at least from the creation aspect that, you know, you, I heard somebody say this the other day, and I, I don't remember who it was, but like, you got to sort of read, you got to know what's out there before you can create, kind of, or you got to, from a certain perspective, if you want to write scary stories, you should be well-read in scary stories. Yeah, it's, it's pretty much par for the course. Stephen King says that in his book on writing. Uh, several writers uh, say that the first instrument to writing is being well-read. Yeah. But see, that's my... Where I'm getting to with me is that I like to be a writer, but I... I you know, or anything like that, a creator. But I'm sort of limited in a lot of things. Um, you know, there's a lot of things like I, I know I've come to you with ideas before and you're like uh, one of the best examples was I came to you with an idea we were at this is when we worked together and I told you the idea and like off in the distance a co-worker goes oh that sounds like four rooms I was like oh crap that's already been done <laughs> but I hadn't I hadn't seen it so I didn't know right so like you I'm that I'm sort of on that journey outside of you know, this right here in my own personal life, I'm on that journey to, if I'm going to write a story that's around this, I want to make sure I'm not treading on it. But then also you run into that aspect of if you watch or read too much of something, then it sort of influences what you're going to do. So like, I don't know, what, what is the better way? Know everything that's out there and then try to avoid it or just do something. And if it just happens to be similar, just change a few things because you may create something completely brand new right. and you not know it, you know, or 
you know, you, I don't know. Because you definitely want to be influenced, but you don't want to, I don't know, you don't want to steal wholesale from people. Right. I mean, like, but I think that, like, um, it's a complicated notion that you're mentioning. Because I think Tarantino stills wholesale, and I'm pretty sure the Stranger Things guys still wholesale. Um, because the just stuff doesn't seem very um, original to me. It's just the way they piece it together. I would say for both. Well, not for Tarantino. Tarantino, we'll get to him later. With Stranger Things, I've always been like, they steal moments. Mm -hmm. What pieces the moments together is traditional. Right. Not may not be completely original, but they take things that are nostalgic from a visual, emotional perspective for the 80s, I guess, predominantly. And they piece it together with a story that could be a very familiar story, but at least it becomes original by the piecing and the content. Of I will say that characters, if they didn't have strong, sort of recognizably independent characters, and this is for Tarantino and what are the, the Duffer brothers? Yeah, the Duffer brothers. I, I think that their stuff would fall immediately flat because you can identify with the kids in Stranger Things and, like, say, Jules or, you know, one of Tarantino's characters. Yeah. It's it's even hard to do with Tarantino because I feel like he literally steals so much. He steals characters. I mean, even Django. He couldn't even come up with an original name. He just took Django from... Django Chained is just Django from the Django series. Yeah. Hey. And I would, it's it's really difficult. He can't. He, he I mean, Inglorious Bastards. He just stole the title Inglorious Bastards. It's 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 hard to defend him, but like his characters are likable, and his stuff is schlocky enough and entertaining enough that he pulls people in. Luckily, people don't watch all of the movies that he's watched. Yeah. Um, I have, to know that. <laughs> so it's problematic for me. But I would even say that. I would argue that even his characters aren't that great because most of his characters are just the actors. Like, every Samuel L. Jackson character is just Samuel L. Jackson. That's true. Every Christopher Waltz character, or Christoph Waltz, is Christoph Waltz. Like, every Kurt uh, Russell character is Kurt Russell, pretty much. Like, in his earlier days, it's different, but in his Tarantino stuff, what's really the difference? Right. So, like, does he really create good characters or does he, does he just know how to cast good actors i think tarantino is so obsessed <clears throat> with what he wants to see from what he's already seen that he knows exactly who he wants to cast and by you saying what you just said that's how i view myself in my writing is that i want to see what i want to see the essence of what i've already seen mm -hmm. but i still have some kind of self-awareness to know don't copy but also i'm not as talented as him well, i don't know i don't <laughs> I guess when you do fully steal, it doesn't matter how talented you are. It does seem, it is, it's a very strange question. We didn't even mean to get onto this. Yeah, it's kind of a, it's one of our things is like running a <laughs> rabbit. We're trying to get back to Color Out of Space. So I think that, you know, t Color Out of Space is definitely one of my favorite Lovecraft stories. Yes, even yes. though it does have that sort of second, third hand account aspect of guys trying to prepare this little valley for yep. a reservoir that's being built. Yep. And then um, through his survey he finds uh, a particular portion of um, that little area, uh, what is it, west of Arkham? Yeah, Arkham the Blasted Heath. Heath. The Blasted Heath. 
And he, you know, it, he even says it's so theatrical of a title that he wants to, why? Why would you call it that? He was so, it was such a strange thing. It just seemed like some very countrified, goofy thing until he actually sort of comes upon this super dead, grayed out yeah. moonscape, essentially. It was, so my experience with Lovecraft has been Call of Cthulhu, The Outsider. Uh, I've listened to, I attempted to listen to At the Mountains of Madness, which I just kept thinking, this is the thing almost. <laughs> well, I, which, you know, that was before the thing, but still I was just sort of like, well, they were, they were very close to what the thing is based off of is came out really close to the time At Mountains of Madness came out. Either way, I don't like the way At the Mountains of Madness is presented. I don't like that style, whatever it is. It's sort of like, I don't know. I don't know what it is. But I've had my trouble, you know, with Lovecraft. Um, but when I started Color Out of Space, now granted, I watched the film first. I was very happy with his execution of the story because he, I think he just sort of did it right. From the perspective, you start with the main character and then that main character, you get to know him, kind of. And then he is relaying the story which is fine. Uh, but when you open up with just some guy reading, you know, you're reading some journal entry of somebody who references somebody that saw a cult in Louisiana, like, what? Like, just give me something, you know what I'm saying? So I really enjoyed the story, though, the way it carried through. It is a little bit more closer in it, even though he is sort of telling the story, who's telling the story, who's telling the story sometimes. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, he speaks to Ami, who speaks to Hubert. Or Nahum, so, Nahum. And, and Nahum, and then Nahum speaks. It's kind of confusing because those names are just so Old Testament. Uh, yeah. And then Nahum, you know, relays to Ami in the past about what he saw his wife do, and Ami relays that story to our protagonist. It's it can be frustrating. Yeah, but at least in this one, I felt it, it felt a little bit more cohesive. And yeah, I I really just enjoyed the whole the whole goings on. You know the. It, it's a it's a pretty typical story. Now, granted, I was trying to explain it to to Anne. I was like, so it's I was like, it's hard to understand this story in a twenty twenty aspect because we know that there's only a certain amount of colors that our eyes can see. So the idea of there being a new color is couldn't really happen. But I was like, but I would venture to guess if you were somehow genetically or uh, if your DNA was um, uh, altered to perceive more than what we can perceive, then maybe you could see a new color then. But like just naturally, a new color just can't crop out of nowhere. Right. We're not, uh, what is it, pistol shrimp who can see oh, like, know at least that. like quadruple the range of any. Really? Yeah, their, their color spectrum is like so much more advanced than ours. So if you splice some of their DNA into ours, mm-hmm. you might could see, you might could start seeing new colors. Now, what's interesting, though, well, I'll say that for the for the, our next bit, but, but yeah, so I was trying to explain that. So if you take that part out of it, right, you take the idea that really there wouldn't be a color if you just sort of make you, if you take the idea that it is just a weird color. It's a weird tinted color that we all know. You know, the meteor comes crashing down. It's emitting this weird color. It's actually shrinking in size. It, it keeps getting smaller, and then it sort of, feeds on the everything around it the land the people 
it's the story is just that happening and then, and then it sinks and then it sort of destroys everything in its wake yeah. and then ascends yeah it ascends and it it just of course leaves the wake of the you know the people in its path right. you know the, the what it how it affects the people right it's a very you know very cool idea we talked about this you know outside of the show you know that somebody said that Every every story is one of two stories of somebody leaving or somebody coming to a town. Right. It's sort of that the meteor comes to town then leaves. Well, kind of interesting too because there is a another aspect. So we so to give you guys some perspective, we read this, uh, we watched the film Colorado Space, and then we also read another short story by Algernon Blackwood, the guy who wrote the John Silence character, which the Doctor Silence pipe is based off of. Guys, give you guys some connections here. Yeah. We read his story, The Willows, which Lovecraft deemed one of the greater English uh, horror stories or supernatural stories um, ever written. So I, I do kind of want to like cue up on all three of those and kind of keep you guys in perspective to to piggyback off of what Patrick said. Yes, there is that whole a stranger comes to town or someone goes on a journey aspect. Another thing that I always heard is there are two types of horror. Um, there's the fear of the unknown, what is outside of, uh, the best example I think was uh, John Carpenter said that if, uh, if a group of people are sitting at a campfire, you know, there's two types of horror. There's the fear of the outside of the light, you know? Mm -hmm. um, everything that is, that is an unknown quantity that could kill you, harm you, or you know abduct you or whatever it's what we do not see it's beyond the veil uh beyond the light yeah. right and then the second story is we're the horror it, the evil is within us one of us is mm -hmm. the bad guy yeah um sort of like the uh the 10 little indian kind of agatha christie oh, thing uh, where it's uh, like, and then there were none yeah yeah yeah, kind of has an aspect of that, yeah. where it's like the evil is within us, or it is is among us. You know, um, there's so that's kind of like the two types of horror stories. So you said Carpenter said that. Carpenter has said that. It's been said before, but I, I like his what he the one the one that sticks out of my mind is what he said, which is what I just kind what, of tried to convey. What's so interesting to me, so everything that I love about cinema and. The month of October and Halloween, it, it all comes from John Carpenter mm -hmm. and, and, and Halloween 1. Uh, granted, Halloween 2 definitely holds a higher place in my heart. I know it doesn't in his heart, and I can understand why there are problems with it. But Halloween essentially is what has done it for me. So I say that because Halloween sort of does both. It um, Michael is a external fear. He is outside the light. He's a fear of an unknown for the people in the town. You know, he is... You don't know what he's going to do. Well, you know what he's going to do, but you don't know if he's going to come for you. You know, the genius of it being on Halloween, everybody's in a costume. You don't know who's going to get you. Mm -hmm. So it's an unknown feeling. But even though he perceives Michael as a um, as a force of evil, but still, if you, if you try to ground the movie, which is how I've always felt about the first one, ground it as best you can, he's just somebody who's gone mad. Mm-hmm. And that could be you. Yeah. You could, you could go mad. You could easily fall into that. So Carpenter combined both styles of horror into one movie. Mm -hmm. Welcome back. Uh, you probably don't even realize it, but we have changed to Studio D at Rivermont Studios. And uh, due to unforeseen circumstances with Studio A. Um, and Lawnmower Man. And Lawnmower Man. So 
that again getting sort of behind the scenes kind of thing we've been contemplating the idea of building a like a, just a dedicated like shop where you can smoke pipes but the inherent problem is the number one thing with smoking pipes indoors is ventilation you you don't want to get smoked out but then the number one thing when you want to do a podcast is soundproofing right so it's unless you're willing to spend thousands of dollars on a ventilation system there's no way to do a soundproofing soundproofing podcasting pipe smoking studio right. it just doesn't happen so, um, for the most part, I think we just generally realize that you're going to hear sounds. You're going to hear something, yeah. And well, it's not really that bad because we are smoking on a porch. Yeah. And, you know, what better place to smoke than on a porch? Oh, for Southerners, at least. So, you know, you can get the yeah. kind of the ambiance of and the sort of sounds of what that is like. And, the, I mean, yeah, that is like a, the positive of, you know, being a pie smoker in the South is it never really gets too cold to be on your porch. Not really. Um, you just put on extra layers, maybe a portable heater. That's really all you'll need. Mm-hmm. Uh, I sort of uh, feel bad for like Michigan pipe smokers and and uh, like ca- Canadian pipe smokers. Right. Like the winter must be hell. <laughs> yeah, I would not enjoy that. Of course, like you know, I mean, it's kind of funny you'd say that, but then I feel like you would be right at home in Alaska. But also feel like you just do everything inside in Alaska. Yeah, you wouldn't. Whatever transcends, you're comfortable in the south, you go further north and you get more and more uncomfortable, and then eventually you break that northern barrier where it's just like, I do what I want. Yeah, like, it, it, nobody ever comes here, why does it matter? (laughs) You know, like, I'm, I'm here alone. But to get back to what we were talking about, I think we were sort of talking about the different ideas of horror, and, you know, we, we, we read the short story, Color Out of Space, um, and that led into the film, so... Uh, the film came out, I believe, in 2019, or was it 2018? 2019. Uh, Richard Stanley film. Right. Uh, Nicholas Cage, same producers. I think Elijah Wood is one of them. The same it's, producers that did Mandy. Spectre or Studios. Yeah, Spectre Vision. I think. Spectre Vision. Or, yeah, something Spectre like that. Spectre Vision. Yeah. Uh, I, I sort of like their logo, the way it comes together, right. and it almost looks like a a, a D20 die, mm-hmm. but you can see the S and the V, and I'm like, that's pretty interesting. The company I work for does something similar with their logo, but either way, uh, yeah. So it, you know, uh, the producers that did this did Mandy, um, which I, I think you enjoyed. I loved Mandy. Yeah. Um, so really, Nick Cage is Nick Cage and Tommy Chong are the only people of relevance actors. Oh, in the this. wife has been in several yeah, movies. Yeah, she yeah, was the in Patriot, and she was in. Uh... Yeah, I, I can't off the top of my head remember all the films she's been in, but she's uh, she's not unknown. Yeah, the, it actually shocked me that she was in it. Yeah, well, that's the that's the funny thing about actors, right? There's actors that are unknown that you've never seen before. There's actors that you know but you never know their name, mm-hmm. and then there's the actors you know, um, and then there's sort of a Tommy Chong oh, and Nicholas Cage are definitely the prominent ones that stand yeah. out in my mind. The yeah. wife's a British actress, and she's been in several British films and a couple of American ones and stuff, and yeah. I know her, but I don't, uh, I can't, it doesn't really stand out yeah. in my head. Now, you know, like I said, from, from the perspective of the uh, short story, right, I, I, it was a pretty straightforward story, really liked it. Um, an opportunity missed in the movie. So the movie, there's a little bit of a change. So the short story is, you know, a surveyor is there 
to survey the reservoir because they're going to dam it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're going to flood it. Um, and he is being told a story that happened in 1882. Right. In the movie... The surveyor, the story happens for the surveyor. Right. He's not being retold the story. Which I think it's a better push. It is a better push, but I will say it is a missed opportunity for marketability with Stranger Things and everything 80s being such a big thing. They easily, easily could have done the exact same thing and they could have been referencing 1982. And you could have got all that 80s nostalgia that everybody loves. Now, for me, enjoying the movie, I don't care. But if they was trying to market it a little bit, you sort of hit the what's cool to do, mm-hmm. they could have done that. If you wanted to make money, yes. Yeah. Um, I do like that. So, so man, I just really don't want to run a bunch of rabbits here. <laughs> because it's really you really want to stay on point. But I will try to make a quick point. Maybe we can entertain it another day. I do think that the pull, the trend... To do 80s nostalgia, this is a tidbit. I understand it's nostalgia, which actually sort of negates my argument, but there is an ease to writing when you don't have cell phones, when you're not so connected. Uh, And it's interesting to see a modern take on a horror film that actually circumvents technology. Um, There are some cliche things where you're sort of out in the sticks, and you don't have the best reception, um, and they, they do make you know passing acknowledgments of internet being yeah. uh, finicky, uh, satellite being finicky, uh, cell reception, phone reception being finicky. Um, but you know, it does take more thought really to get beyond technology, which yeah. I think is why people love the 80s. Because, see, the thing is, is if you're in the middle of a street in 80s New York, unless there's a payphone nearby, you're pretty much on your own. Yeah. yeah. Um, nowadays, you can you can pretty much reach help in any portion of a civilized area. I mean, I, I really don't. Yeah. I really don't have areas. I think we've I've crossed the Tennessee River a couple times and lost cell reception. And that's I'm like in the and that's in the middle of the river. I haven't even lost cell reception going off of, over Lake Pontchartrain in yeah. Louisiana. You, just don't, I, you just don't have a moment where you're not connected. It definitely, yeah. It, from a creating a new type of horror, it definitely creates a new hurdle that people have to jump. Because because I mean, it's it's interesting to look at the new Halloween movies. You know, they're running and screaming. I'm like, aren't you teenagers? With cell phones, yeah, like what you know, the, and then the, it's just this. Uh, the town is sizable, um, but there's also just one cop. Like, how is that yeah. possible? You know, it's like I mean, we're having an issue right now in the country where people want to reduce police force, but there's this mythical town in uh, <laughs> you Illinois. Know, Illinois that has <laughs> one police. You know, and they they don't struggle with any of the other problems that their like mid-sized cities struggle with. They have this white mass psychopath who's murdering people and, and they just have the one cop. You know, if if anything, maybe Halloween produced more police force after the 70s movie. You know, people are like, you know, this one cop show, you know, that's all we need right now is a Michael Myers and then it's just gotten out of control. <laughs> yeah. That's a weird aside, but I mean, it's always strange to me that they only have the one cop. I swear... Every movie is that—that that is the ultimate cliche. It's just the one cop. Yeah, like Jaws, one cop. 
Right. And they have a partner, but they're never around. They're never around. Like, he, he has a literal deputy or something, or, or, or a sergeant, whatever it might be. He has one, but then he goes to the oceanographer. Yeah. And the psychopathic ship uh, captain. Like, that's what he, that's his, that's yeah. his police force, is yeah. some upscale city slicking oceanographer, and then this, like, blue-collar, working-class hero shrimp captain or something. I don't know even know what he's... Boating for you, well, you go into his thing, and it's just like I just hunt sharks. I'm like, there's a market for that. Like, <laughs> so, so you, there's a market for hunting sharks, but this is the first time that the police need to be involved, right? So, yeah. I mean, yeah. Jaws is one of my favorite movies, yeah. but like, there are limits when you start to break down the kind of the aspects of the story. The one cop, the and then like in a modern sense, the cell phone. But this Richard Stanley has a way of getting around that by making the color uh, interfere with cell and internet reception. It ties in. And it sort of does alienate you even more from the rest of the world. Yeah. Uh, Which I thought worked. Like, I like that. Because that seems like, from a writer's perspective, like, because I write a little bit, it it does take more. Yeah. It's a convenient way to tie the story into a reason. Right. And... Um. Yeah, and then another thing, sort of, I was going to bring this up earlier, talking about the color being, you know, we can't perceive new color. So the film sort of just went like a weird magenta, and actually the color gets like more and more like fluorescent as the movie goes. Maybe it, it starts off very light magenta, and then it's almost, I guess, fades into a purple like towards the end of the movie, um, which was a cool idea. Granted, I had I found it really hard to believe when Nick Cage is over here like, some color I've never seen. I'm like, it's magenta. Just tell him it's magenta. Right. <laughs> like, which magenta, actually the science behind magenta is very strange. The color, I remember reading something about how it almost, it we should not be, we should not perceive magenta. It's actually a weird thing. Oh. Maybe that's why they chose that color. I don't know. Maybe. It was this thing I was reading where technically brown doesn't exist. Brown is just a, a different hue of orange. But that's we'll get to that but another I think, day. You know, I think with all its... It's a good movie. Um, yeah. It's got a lot of elements of body horror. And it does do a lot of callbacks to the 80s. Specifically, I think The Thing is uh, yeah. very prominent in it. Yeah. Um, which is very Lovecraftian. I think yeah. if you had to list... Movies that are Lovecraftian, not Lovecraft. This is a Lovecraft movie, so naturally it's Lovecraftian. But uh, the thing would be Lovecraftian in yep. its uh, execution. It's not based on anything that Lovecraft wrote. However, it has very specific Lovecraft elements, yep. and I think that you know Stanley saw that and sort of cued into that. They do a really good job of sort of creating the abominations that the color creates, Mm -hmm. uh, be it um, this weird amalgam of animals or this distortion of the natural life around and how everything is affected by this uh, meteorite. And the the surveyor, I actually really enjoyed that actor. I really thought that... Very good. Yeah, he was a very good actor. Um, Everyone in it is pretty good, minus Nicolas Cage. (laughs) <laughs> who's for some reason so Nicolas Cage used to be really good in my opinion like I mean like I think he was a good actor but everyone sort of gave him 
kind of up the road about being an overactor. I swear, like, now I think he's just trolling people. Because every movie I see him in going forward, he seems to be getting more and more, like, ham. Which is so strange, because I was like, man, I know you've got good acting chops because I've seen it. Like, I guess know? he just he just swerved into it. He's just like, y'all he think I'm doing like, it? You think I'm doing it? So I'm going to do it. And now it's just like every scene with him, he's just chewing it up. The funny thing, though, about him, so I didn't really find anything jarring about his performance except for three to four or five times, he almost did a Trump impression in some of his way he talked. It sounded like he was doing a Trump impression. Hmm. I don't know if that's just the times we live in, but it. I was like, man, that's so eerie. Like, I don't know if he's doing that on purpose or if that's just the way he is. He has a breakdown in a car that was pretty, like, over the top. I, I, even I was like, geez, like, yeah. you know, tone it back a little bit. When he there's a, contra, a confrontation that he has with um, the daughter, and I was just like, man, that escalated way too fast. Mm-hmm. But. There was a scene that, well, there's a scene that's pure genius. It might have been done before, but I, it's the first time I've seen it. And it was so eerie that I, I love it. But then there was also a scene that un- unnerved me so much I had to stop the movie and come back to it later. The, the scene, so spoilers for anybody. So if you don't want to hear this, just stop right now. There's a part where, uh, you'll know it as soon as I start talking about it, where she's cutting carrots. And she's sort of just in the zone, like the wife is. And Nicolas Cage is yelling at her because they sort of made him look like an idiot. Well, he sort of made himself look like an idiot on the news. Mm -hmm. And he's hollering at her like, come in here, see this. And she's she's cutting the carrots. And the little boy comes in and is like, mom. And right when he gets there, she chops off her two, two of her fingers, it looks like. And, like, blood splashes on his face, and he runs. Now, that's not the part that's genius. What I loved was he, the little kid runs in there. He's like, Dad, something's wrong with Mom. And then the camera's behind her, and she just turns and, like, waves him. He's like, dinner's ready. And like, she didn't even realize she cut her fingers off. Right. I thought that was great. I, that was a great scene. Right. It was really interesting. Um, that's the scene that unnerved you? No, no, that's the scene I loved. I loved that scene. The scene that unnerved me... Well, before you say that, the carrot scene was interesting because I've seen that scene play out several times and they never execute what you think is going to happen. Yeah. Even I was like, okay, and then, like, she's going to... Looks like she's going to chop off her finger. Yeah. And then she's going to be like, what, honey? And you're going to be like, oh, that was close. Yeah. The kid saved her. But no. No. She lops off those fingers. Yeah. But <clears throat> the, the icing on top was her so unaware of it and she just looked back and like you see her head or you see the side of her face you see her fingers chopped off and she's just like dinner's ready like she did not even know she did it right that was so interesting the but yeah yeah you've seen things like that where it it's building up and you know what's going to happen but it never does right but that one just did it and i was like it's sort of a a part of a new thing in horror that i think is happening where it's really more with jump scares. Jump scares, you know, used to, they happened, right? And when the, the first evolution of a jump scare, it just happened. And right. the music happened with it. So, like, there was no buildup. Then we got to the buildup. And then we got to, there's a buildup, and then nothing, and then boom, jump scare. Right. Now there's a, a coming back of just jump scaring, right? No buildup, just jump scare. That's sort of that. It's It's in that same vein of, we're gonna 
we're gonna uh, just do it. We're just gonna do it, and you're gonna experience it. The scene that unnerved me uh, that I had to like stop was there's a part where the color uh, is it's chasing the two sons, and the one of the sons falls, the younger son, and then the the older one keeps running. And then the mom runs out and grabs the the little boy, but then the color gets them. And then they're like merging into one thing. And that was so like, just, I couldn't handle it. Like that, when they're laying on the couch and they're making their noises Mm -hmm. and they're, they're forming into one, I was like, oh God. (laughs) So I stopped the movie, simmered on it and came back a couple days later and sort of just finished it from there. Richard Stanley does a pretty good job of like, collectively taking the beats of the stories that really do work and uh, filtering them into the movie but putting a modern lens on it. Mm-hmm. I think that the movie does really do justice to the story. Yeah. Um, but it's not limited to the way the story was limited. Like, um, mm-hmm. the story doesn't really work as a straight film. Yeah. Uh, but the way Stanley did it makes it work, which is nice. So usually yeah. I don't say that. Usually I say, you know, why don't you just basically you know, use the story. Yeah. The story structure makes sense. The story structure does not make sense for film. It's a good story, but it's not a filmable story. Yeah. So he did things that I liked mm-hmm. um, to a story that, that really did need a revamping. He mm-hmm. sort of gave everyone a purpose. Everyone, you know, it's not like... Um, not everyone's going to have a specific arc that you get to yeah. witness. You're really just witnessing really horrifying things. Yeah. Um, you're not going to get, but, but they all have purpose and that's nice. Yeah. There, there's built up, there's pre-existing built up tension amongst the family members right. that is true, but you don't see that in the story. That's right. Because it is told from a, so many perspectives that little internal dramas amongst a family would not carry over right. in a retelling. But because he didn't make it a retelling, he made it, it's all happening, the surveyor is involved in the story. Which is, like, I think gives the whole thing, you know, more substance because you get to experience it from, really, the narrator. And he pulled, Stanley pulled, like, I think it was tweaked a teensy bit, but he pulled really specific dialogue um, Mm -hmm. from the story. Yep. Uh, the narration is almost verbatim. Yeah, the, the opening and the ending yep. is identical almost. Um, but I think that sort of goes into the um, idea, like that. I always have a hard time, like so. Say we they had did what I did for money's sake. Say they had, the surveyor shows up and then he's being told a story that happens in 1982. Right. What's always bothered me when you do a real flashback mm-hmm. is you do see all the little intricacies and the little nuances. I'm like. The person telling the story would not have told that. Mm-hmm. That wouldn't even the person who's telling the story wouldn't even know to include those details. Exactly. But you know that's the thing. It's like you, you sort of have to set up a, a, a amount of disbelief. Yeah. Which is also like the whole unreliable narrator shtick that I yeah. was talking about. It it shouldn't matter, but it does. Yeah. Well, um, it's all about believing that you're in the world. You want to be in the world. Right. Um. You know, you, you want to escape. You want to feel like you're there, and those little things matter. Right. Those little. Now things. there, there have been instances where I've read other things. Okay, so Color Out of Space is very similar to a, a novel called The Fisherman. Mm-hmm. Almost has this exact same premise, except mm-hmm. not a color. Like literally, they're building a reservoir, 
and there is some entity there that you know i don't want to we can talk about that some other time i'll reread it but it's Mm -hmm. it's got a very similar theme Mm -hmm. where it's like even a reservoir and it's it's the whole story is about someone in the past but then they go to the protagonist at the beginning of the story and then he tells his point of view from this uh, like so the thing that happened in the past happened but then fast forward to the present Mm -hmm. and he has the his story yeah so he tells the history and then he tells what he witnessed and that really did combine it so Mm -hmm. if the protagonist had to experience something i think color out of space would be elevated in other words, if the portion that you read as the story was part one, and then part two was, this is now what the real issue is with the reservoir or whatever, uh, yeah. I think it gives it a little bit more substance. Yeah. And then it, it, it carterizes everything. Even though in the novel, the history portion is actually, I think, longer than the present portion, mm-hmm. it's still, like it's sort of like just you know sewed it mm-hmm. up real nice. Yeah, which, you know, again, like you've said before, Color Out of Space sort of fixed that by just not going back in time, just making it all there. And I think that that's, you know, that's, you know, like I said, as far as an adaptation and everything and the way it was set uh, was really good. And even they had interesting calls to Miskatonic University. They had calls to Arkham, Kingsport. And uh, the protagonist, which we're going to assume is the surveyor, had a copy of The Willows. Which goes into our the other story that we read. So, Algernon Blackwood, the guy who inspired the Dr. Silence Pipe, the sort of the theming of this podcast, mm-hmm. right, or this episode, um, wrote The Willows, which Lovecraft said was one of the better yeah. English-written supernatural stories. So, we read that, and ironically, we saw it in the film. Yep. And it has a lot of relations to the color out of space, not the film, but the story, um, in that it is, it's very, where you're sort of immersed into a world, and there's a, there's a heavy hand to the natural environment, and what happens when something alien sort of encapsulates that environment with color out of space it's very cosmic in this it's very supernatural almost other dimensional spiritual yeah. yep um i think if i had to do it i would say the fear of natural horror versus the fear of cosmic horror yeah cosmic horror being color out of space and lovecraft <clears throat> and this natural supernatural horror yeah being the willows and i would say sort of a callback to what you were saying about Carpenter and being the two different types of horror. What really, I like the Willows a lot. What was <clears throat> what was interesting is I, I believe I watched the Color Out of Space movie, then I read the Willows, <clears throat> excuse me, and then I read Color Out of Space. And what was interesting, again, I've never really liked the actual writing of Lovecraft. And when I went through the Willows, I was like, this is what I'm talking about. Why can't Lovecraft be like this? This is this is very palatable. I understand what's happening. It it I can feel it. It's at, it's atmospheric. And then of course, then I read Color Out of Space. And I'm like, okay, well there we go. I I, I can see Lovecraft can do that. It's mm-hmm. just the ones that I've read. He's didn't carrying, do that. like I think Blackwood's characters in the Willows have agency and they have purpose. Yeah, yeah. you know, um, they have survival mechanics. Mm-hmm. Not to say that the detectives or Ami or you know Nahum 
right? Yeah. yeah. It had didn't have that. Um, I just feel like it's a little bit more fleshed out with Black Widow. Yeah. But what I was going to say about it is what I really enjoyed about The Willows was the first two-thirds of it feels more like just how, from my perspective, how most people feel when they're going on a camping trip, right? You you sort of, you may see things that are weird, but you don't know if it's really weird or if it's your mind playing tricks on you. So you have that sort of, you don't know. And that's, in a way, the essential conflict between the carpenter point. Mm-hmm. Is it, are you afraid of what's out there or that you can't see? Or are you afraid of your of your own self, uh, the monster among among us? That's sort of what happens in that first little bit. You're, at least that's how I've related to it. Is that, am I projecting something out there, or am I actually perceiving some kind of threat? You know, and and a lot of times, you know, you simply go, "Well, that's just my mind playing tricks on me," which is like an internal thing that you have to deal with. But then when it becomes real, then you're like, oh, "Okay, well now I need to, your mind sort of has to reconfigure. Like, okay, now I need to protect myself, kind of thing." Now, granted, it doesn't go all the way there because it gets sort of alternate reality-ish or, you know, different dimensions. But that that, that first two-thirds, that's that's the feeling I was getting. I was like, maybe that's where it's going. It didn't go, it didn't completely go that way, but right. that's well, what I was getting at. Well, the interesting thing is, is it is the, the two stories juxtaposed is the, the, the Willows is the civilized man versus the untamed environment. Yeah. And, to, and then that untamed environment has a sort of, pagan um, uh, spiritual kind of dimensioning to mm-hmm. it. Um, even talks about like the thinning veil between worlds. Yeah. yeah. Um, while, ironically, the color out of space is the rustic man versus what could be described as a civilized thing. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not saying that the color itself is civilized, mm-hmm. but he does interact with a more civilized populace people who want to investigate the meteorite yeah. and people who listen to a story and laugh at it. Um, it does have these weird things where it's sort of the inverse yeah. where yeah. the thing that is cosmically scary is even more so pronounced with the rustic man versus the civilized man being unnerved by the natural environment. Yeah. One's allowing their fear. My, if we're looking at it objectively with, and then you could sort of extract the horror components from it one is fearful of what would be the unknown and natural environment, the untamed environment, mm-hmm. versus the rustic man who is fearful of what could be perceived as civilized, progressive things in terms of the way you're coming through the world. Because uh, they're going to study it, they're going to um, rationalize it, and mm-hmm. they're going to give him like an answer while he has no answers he's just like it's an unknown color that burns and it saps a life and that's all he knows he knows from his very elemental stance while the civilized people know from their more like well this is the mechanics to survive yeah yeah you know and these are what we objectively observe and anything else is just sort of your mind yeah i think yeah you're, you're spot on with that and i think i like the willows better as a story or as a concept? I can only base on the emotion of reading it. Okay, the so, atmosphere this, that's so built. I guess like the story. You think I, it's better? I, it's well written. Because I think yeah. Color Out of Space actually has a better premise. Yeah, 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 yeah. The, the Willows is a, is very baseline. Mm-hmm. Like it's, 
it's a very simple idea. It's just two guys canoeing down. Canoeing down, you know, the Danube, and then they land and camp, make camp on an island that seems to be a nexus point between yeah. our realm and another realm. It, it's not talking about, you know, extra dimensional terrestrials or anything like mm-hmm. that. It, it, they're not, you're not even sure what it is. It they sort of really, leaves it up to you. It sort of gives you kind of like, uh, yeah, it, it definitely just doesn't describe. Yeah. Um, you have an idea that you're looking at what would be pagan gods in a natural environment. That's yeah. the way I look at it. Yeah. While Colorado space is yeah. kind of a known quantity, even though it's unknown. Um, yeah. You know sort of what's going on. Um, it gives it a little bit more substance. However, you you only see it through the eyes of the protagonist and the characters interacting with it, which actually give it a coat of malevolent force. Mm-hmm. But there is nothing, of, like if you look at it just from like a natural environment, there's nothing malevolent about it. Yeah. It's doing exactly what it needs to do. It's killing everything out for an energy source so it can ascend back into space. Yeah. That's exactly what it's doing. It sort of it, it crash landed to get fuel. Right. And then that's it, all it did. And then it absorbed everything that it needed to and then <clears throat> you know reascended back into space. Which you pointed to in our earlier conversations about it. The Willows does something a little different. It's sort of contradicts itself in that air in that aspect of mm-hmm. what's the intent of the thing that you don't know right um they do suggest that that they're so insignificant which is the interesting thing between both stories the insignificance of humanity is this really scary thing it's the same way that you know i approached patrick with a question you know if there were a colony of ants in your backyard is it malevolent to kill them or not well to the ants, if the ants have, you know, a, a much higher sentience than what we perceive them as having, yeah. it's malevolent. This is an invader who's trying to kill them. That's what it looks like. But to us, it's just business as usual. Like, there's an ant bed in my yard. I want to destroy it. But, like, they don't feel anything. Well, that's the same thing with, like, cosmic horror to me. They're in, and I guess to a certain extent, the willows, they're in so indifferent. Humanity is so whatever. Yeah. Um then it doesn't matter. Mm. And that's what's really scary about it, is that you can't really assign evil or malevolence to that thing because we're that insignificant. The same way that the color out of space views everything that it crashed around as fuel, Yeah, the willows, all the entities in that, would seemingly think that we're insignificant. Ironically, it does twist that a little bit because the Swede gets it in his mind that to sort of escape it, there has to be some sort of sacrifice in play. But then I'm wondering, is that just the way Blackwood wrote that character? That character was trying to that character was trying to justify what was happening. Yeah, and you know, as much rationalizing as the protagonist does, yeah. that's probably what's happening. Yeah. But Blackwood didn't really intend for that to be the but case. But he also was the one that said we're so indifferent. The Swede said that, yeah. and then the Swede tried to sacrifice himself. It's almost like, the only thing I can say that would kind of give credence to the whole thing is that you don't know so much yeah. that you sort of have to, that the Swede probably hit the nail on the head at the beginning by saying we're in, it's indifferent yeah. to our existence. Yeah. But then had to re-rationalize it out of fear. And well, see, that's, when I was reading it, 
there was a moment where it felt like the Swede and the the main character swapped their presence in the story. So like leading up to it, the Swede was the no nonsense, you know, I'm this is what it is, and he doesn't really entertain ideas of fantastical. Yeah, I think the protagonist even says that he's very unimaginative. Yeah. But I think there is a moment where it swaps, where the Swede, because of fear, gives in to that. And I think that's what led to that contradiction in his saying. Well, fear is the mind killer. It is. Call back to that one. What's funny is, I'm going to chase a small rabbit. I haven't read into this enough. I don't know. There's a lot of things I don't know. (laughs) Uh, But you were talking about ants, right? The ants... If they could, if they could conceive thoughts that way, they would con- consider us malevolent. Right. Is it too much of a stretch to ponder that the universe can only handle one type of not species, but one type of organisms that can perceive that way? You know, like so. It would be one thing to think that ants did perceive us, you know, from that perspective. But because we do think that way, and we know ants don't think that way, can there even possibly be some, can there be a point to where we are the ants and something else isn't? Because can the universe handle that? Two things that can think to that level. Granted, what would be above us would think to a higher level, but it's still that same, it's just an, uh, uh, I guess, higher evolved version. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, I know ants can communicate with one another, but they don't know. They can't. It's like what we talked about with the dune, the animal. You know, you, you an animal cannot perceive, like, the, if I go through a little, a little bit of pain now, at least I'll live. They just want to make sure that they're not feeling pain. Where humans can be like, I'll go through a little bit of pain, and I'll be, but at least I won't die. Right. Can that even happen at a higher even level? Like, does that even make sense that there would be something that would that would be that way? Well, I mean, you got to look at it like, if that isn't the case, say, right, then yeah. there is a definite stopping point for us to to keep ascending. Yeah. So you know, if if look at, I'll use vegan as an example. Um, people have gotten to a point that they think meat is so. Ab- such an abomination and so cruel that they would forego eating meat Mm -hmm. and only stick to plant-based products, right? I'm not judging. I'm not saying just it's whatever. Yeah. So that probably, you know, isn't the newest concept in the world, but I imagine if you go back a thousand years, it's probably even more rare, if not definitely not even, it's probably non-existent if you go, pre-agrarian yeah yeah so like you would have to assume that a higher consciousness has to basically stop evolving at a certain point Mm -hmm. so there has to be a limitation to which the mind reaches so i don't know what i'm saying is i don't know yeah because i was just trying to think because you would assume that we were more elevated than our ancestors yeah so there has to be something even more so elevated than us in a future timeline or potentially out in space. But that's what I was sort of getting at. So, but the thing is, is if you're so much higher, if you, if you think on a level, let's say that you, you have 
perfect pitch with the universe, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and, uh, the, and what goes along with that philosophy in that perfect pitch scenario is, is that there is no death, there's no life, that everything is, is essentially matter and that that matter is just, you know, reconstituted to something else. Then, mm-hmm. then yeah, killing would be, you, you would be basically unfettered to kill or destroy or take whatever you wanted to and it wouldn't be malevolent to you just like getting rid of the ants so they don't sting your kid or you or you in the yard is no more evil in your eyes yeah they sort of touch on similar ideas in well the watchman show similar Mm -hmm. i don't know i know we've we've discussed the show in a in a small capacity right but it sort of gets touched on in that in a way um yeah okay well yeah i was just trying to think because i'm like, oh, just saying that's just something to think about yeah because there's no you know you used ants in our example there is no thing that you could replace ants with that does understand and perceive why we're doing it like nothing out there would understand that we're only thing that would would be another human so which I guess that's sort of getting holocaust in mm-hmm. a way. But like even then, you know, it was, un- whatever. I, I don't know. That, that's a different topic for a different day. Right. Either way, um, the Willows definitely, uh, I can see. And like I said, I'm not justifying wholesale murder or anything like oh, that. No. I'm just saying like if there were something where you would assume matter is anything, any, you're just matter, I'm matter, and then like us dead is just reconstituted matter, fertilizer, whatever, right? Yeah. I'm not saying that like you should shrug off morals. I'm just saying like in that scenario, a higher consciousness who believes that doesn't see the difference between states, maybe potentially. I don't know. Yeah, but see, at that point, because your conscious is something separate than your matter, would would a consciousness ever get to that point? You know what I'm saying? I don't know. Because... I mean, like, you're basically talking about, like, what every metaphysical or <laughs> spiritual or religious argument that's ever been concocted. So I, I, this is some deep philosophy where it's like, is there, is there something, you know, I guess more pure than our own consciousness? Is there something more elevated than our own consciousness i I don't know we only have the one thing to compare it to plus whatever we can imagine yeah um it's kind of like one of those things like what's the perception of god or whatever you know i mean like how do you perceive something like that i mean it's kind of like the same thought that i have on like atheism to a certain extent where you know people say that they don't believe in god and i feel like that is just as faith-filled as like belief in god and it almost, to me, and I'm not trying to offend atheists, this is just a personal take, uh, it almost, to me, has a kind of a contradictory element because the only thing that could literally disprove a god would, in fact, probably be a god. Like, yeah. I feel like the thing that could disprove it would, at this state, and you know, for everyone in the world, would at least have a minor god sense, and it would probably be omniscient, at least, yeah. and potentially omnipotent. If it could disprove it, you know, with, you know, zero fallibility, it would probably perceive us as a god. So it's sort of like one of those things where it's like we're limited by 
our own abilities to imagine beyond. Yeah. That's what I'm getting at. So try not to take, think of it like in a philosophic sense, not in that I'm arguing that you're wrong if you're listening to this and frustrated. It's just the things that we comprehend at this level are so limited that even the things that we could potentially disprove would in fact be disproven by the entity that was disproving it. So yeah. like anything that could just without, with certainty say that there is no God, we would probably potentially believe is a God. That's the limitations of humanity, I think. Yeah, because it, the only, yeah, because you, you can't prove a God doesn't exist. Like a human can't. Right, we can't. But the thing that could would have to be something that knew. Yeah, or like would potentially have all of the yeah. the credentials that would at least give you a Greek god. Yeah, yeah. But but even on that instance, like you know, like you were saying about, like you said, it, not believing in a god is as much faith based as believing in a god because you're you're putting it up to faith because you can't prove one way or the other. Right. But the thing that, but if those things are provable, so it would have to be by a God. It would be by something that would be perceived yeah. essentially by us, by definition, as a God. Yeah. And that, in and of itself, I'm not saying that that disproves them. No. I'm just saying that that, in and of itself, shows you the limitations of the human yeah. mind and consciousness. It's not an argument for or against no. anything. It's just an argument in the terms of our limitations. Like yeah. I'm saying that we're so limited. I think uh, Isaac Asimov, who's a famous atheist, so I'll quote a famous atheist for you atheists out there who are frustrated with me, uh, said that you know science by definition is advanced enough would be perceived as magic. So that's probably a more digestible thing. You know, it's like there is a form of science to you and I mm -hmm. that would look like magic. It, it would be unexplainable. Yes. Yep. It's the limitations of your understanding. Yep. And you can and you just take that idea into what you're saying, which is, again, like you said, not an argument. It's a philosophical thought. It's right. A, it's, and it's like, you know, this is one of those things. It's just a personal stance on it, too. Hopefully no one got super upset. Now, we made it. We made it through this, guys. Yes. Yeah, we made it. Uh, but that's just the thought on it. It's like it does seem that, to your point, is there a higher consciousness? Well, the only thing that could prove it, in a sense, would be a higher, would be a higher consciousness. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know. Just That's where my mind went. I've never really delved into the idea of consciousness. Well, it's got a little complicated. Sorry, we got all a little off track. But The Willows, great story. Yeah, it, any of these stories, the... Colorado Space is a good a good read, especially here in October. Uh, Willows is a great one to read. Um, I, I say October just because of Halloween. You can watch it anytime and enjoy it, uh, and then or read it. And then uh, the film is a good adaptation. It's, it's a very good adaptation. It's um, very good. It's very interesting. Stayed really true to the story, um, but giving it good updates. But giving it updates that were really yeah. good. So. I'll I'll just end with this. I, I really enjoyed the. The final narration, the whole, the, from a cinematic standpoint. The the final shot of the reservoir and then the over river with a valley mm -hmm. was pretty magnificent. Yeah. And like I just, like I said, I, that actor was just a good actor. Yeah, like just the really way good. he was doing it all. Even was, his age makeup was pretty good. Oh, yeah. It was it was great. Um, yeah. But yeah, Gus, check it out. Yeah. Uh, hopefully you stayed with us. Uh, yeah. I know we kind of went on a quite a tangent several but, I mean, I guess that was actually relatively organized for us, and we'll hopefully start tightening it up more and more. Uh, yeah. yeah, that was a... 
you know, because I definitely think some people do enjoy the ramble, mm-hmm. the rabbit hole chasing. So well, I don't think we'll ever be able to get away from it. It's just the nature of us. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which makes it fun. But, uh, yeah, we hope you enjoyed this, and uh, uh, we look forward to uh, hearing from you, and uh, we'll look forward to doing the next episode. So, till the next time. See y'all.